This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. And I'm Jarrett Murphy from City Limits. And Ben, Mayor de Blasio was described now, I think the term is on a glide path to re-election. We don't know that's going to happen, but if it did, one of the questions that comes up for a first-term mayor is who is going to be there among his supporting cast for the second term, because obviously the mayor doesn't run the city solely by himself. Um, in the past year, de Blasio has said goodbye to his police commissioner, first police commissioner, ACS commissioner, planning, um, housing, his uh, chief counsel as well, a lot of changes. Mm -hmm. And in the past week or so, his correction commissioner, Joseph Pont, has very much been in the news for stuff he's been doing outside the city. Yeah, as soon as this um, Department of Investigations report broke that Pont and some of his other top aides had been misusing their city vehicles for, for travel, you know, sort of the question is, will Pont survive this, especially since there's been so much focus on problems at Rikers, even though de Blasio has said that Pont is a reformer and things are going well. There's a lot of questions about how well things are going there. Um, so you have to wonder in light of this, how long Pont remains on the scene with a lot of commissioners, especially with that tough of a job, you wonder if they have more in them than one term anyway. Um, de Blasio came out very strongly to defend Pont, just said, you know, he got some bad advice about how to use his city vehicle. Um, there's still some big questions about that support for him. So you have to sort of wonder with Pont, um, where that's heading and whether, you know, maybe he sticks it through this storm so it doesn't look so bad, but then there's sort of this natural breaking point where maybe it's time to say goodbye as the election approaches, you know? Yeah, some advice is so bad you just don't take it, and I think this <laughs> right. might be a situation where that comes up, but it's a brutal job, certainly, uh, but it's that particular dispute between DOI and Department of Correction uh, is not limited to the report itself. There is now today a story about some of the behind the scenes sort of battling over the investigation that, that produced it and other investigations that DOI has done on DOC. Yeah, really, really startling revelations that a deputy commissioner at Department of Correction was spying on the Department of Investigation as the Department of Investigation was investigating the Department of Correction. I mean, pretty wild stuff that you don't see that often and, you know, some pretty serious malfeasance. And when the Department of Investigation now followed up with this aspect of the whole ordeal, um, they said that they've made five recommendations to the mayor's office and they've already accepted all five, which includes basically demoting this uh, deputy commissioner at DOC. But there's a lot of problems going on there. And one of my first reactions to this second wave of news is, well, maybe if the commissioner himself wasn't out of town so much, he might have a better handle on sort of what's Well, this is, I mean, it's not just the question of the vehicle usage and the mileage he pays for it. But, you know, one wonders if uh, Pont obviously was the state commissioner for correction in Maine. That's the job he came from. Uh, whether this was a wink, wink, nod, nod part of his accepting the job, that he'd be able to you know, spend a lot of time in Maine. There are other people who came in with de Blasio that, you know, certainly had pre-existing commitments that they honored. I think Mitchell Silver, the Parks Commissioner, had lectures he was doing at Harvard that he continued to do during his first few months in office. So that's been part of the picture. But, you know, unfortunately or fortunately, it goes to the idea that de Blasio is not a strong enough manager, that, that he has two departments fighting behind the scenes um, over the basics of providing, you know, the services he's supposed to provide. Uh, fairly or not, there's the impression that he does does not manage well, and this um, this goes to that. 
Um, another commissioner or another leader in the news is Deputy Mayor Alicia Glenn, who is now the favorite target of people who are pushing the mayor to change his housing plan. Yeah, I, I think this is going to be interesting to see how the advocates who are pushing for more affordability in the rezonings and in affordable housing projects, um, how they target the deputy commissioner, I'm, I'm sorry, the deputy mayor, and what results that may have. I don't know that that's the best way to move de Blasio, but um, I also think that some of this type of advocacy has been effective. I think the Close Rikers group clearly. Um, well, that's the model. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. So, I mean, what do you, what do you, what do you see happening here, and what do, you, where do you see? Well, I think you know the the knock on Alicia Glenn that she has this background in the, the banking sector and the corporate approach to housing. De Blasio has known that from from day one. Um, that issue has been out there. I don't know how effective that will be. Um, it is true that the closing close Rikers campaign is deemed to have had some effect. Um, you know, other efforts to target commissioners, people picketing outside Steve Banks' house, you know, whether or not that led the city to slow down some of the shelters that were upsetting people in the neighborhoods, that's an open question. But I think, you know, obviously the, the campaign um, and the possibility that making Glenn an issue resonates there would be, you know, one potential avenue for that to have effect. Um, and the mayoral campaign has had some interesting shifts in the past couple of weeks. Tony Avella has suspended his campaign for lack of money, and uh, Michael Faulkner has just chosen a different race. Yeah, Michael Faulkner was running in the Republican primary for mayor. He decided to drop out and run for comptroller. Um, he was also struggling financially, and now, you know, there was no Republican candidate to take on Scott Stringer, so. Not only does this create a little bit of a headache for Scott Stringer, but also Faulkner probably, you know, starts to see some more money flow in just from Republican donors who want to see Stringer pushed. Um, he was having trouble garnering much, you know, by by the way by way of fundraising for his mayoral campaign, and his dropping out also coincided with Assembly Member Nicole Maliotakis joining the Republican primary. So now we see the Republican mayoral primary basically boiled down to two candidates, Paul Massey, the real estate executive, and Molly Takis. Uh, fascinating juxtaposition there, considering their different backgrounds and, and all sorts of things. But, um, you know, it's going to be a head-to-head -head competition, it seems, and they've already started to really go after each other. So that looks like it could be a very contentious primary, and I don't think at this point either of them is going anywhere. Um, but it's all about the, the, the critique that they both have for the mayor is this familiar one in Bodito who won't be running on that line and said it as well and others who have talked about jumping in because they did that the city is out of control, uh, that crime is rampant, that de Blasio has totally taken his eye off the ball when it comes to quality of life issues. Um, and there's been some hyperbole on that point that you detected at least uh, from the assemblywoman from Staten Island. Yeah, we have a new story that um, you know she started her mayoral campaign talking about public safety and quality of of life and crime under de Blasio and pretty quickly made a claim that uh, rape was up 33% under de Blasio and that's nowhere near the case. Um, I pushed uh, her and her campaign to clarify and they didn't do a very good job of clarifying. Um, I think that, you know, one, basically what she was trying to do is sort of group uh, felony assaults and sexual misdemeanors and these types of things all together. But she said rape is up 33% under de Blasio, and that's really not true. Rape is basically up 4% from 2013, Bloomberg's final year, to 2016, de Blasio's third year that we have the full data on from the NYPD. So that's, that's a pretty big exaggeration. So we felt like it was important early in the mayoral campaign to sort of say, 
it's important to be accurate with your facts here. There's there's things to criticize the mayor about, sure, but you know you know you need to present uh, appropriate data and accurate data, especially on something related to public safety and rape. I mean, is a is a huge um, issue to exaggerate about. Definitely, and you know, uh, from my perspective, a lot of the campaign to this point, discussions about who was going to be allowed to run or not what Faulkner does or doesn't run for as a long-shot candidate, uh, even that talk about crime, is kind of goes uh, from at 15,000 feet over the real kind of uh, crucial issues in neighborhoods like East Harlem and Jerome Avenue, which is the proposed de Blasio administration rezonings. Uh, we've reported in the past week that uh, action is picking up in East Harlem. The Euler clock has now started there. And that's a very interesting environment because you have the city's proposal uh, to rezone for more density uh, with some affordability built in. You have the East Harlem Neighborhood Plan, which was drafted by a bunch of stakeholders, including a lot of leadership from the City Council Speaker's Office. And then you have people in the neighborhood who, you know, they've not necessarily always been a big part of even our coverage even, folks who don't want to see any rezoning at all, not just about a better or worse rezoning, but people who believe that any rezoning is likely to invite in displacement, uh, that what we need to do is protect tenants more, People like Movement for Justice in El Barrio, uh, El Barrio Unite, other groups too. So it's a complicated uh, picture, a lot of different voices there. Yeah, and I think uh, one interesting th thing to watch is not only what happens in East Harlem, which is now on this sort of accelerated timeline once the Euler clock starts ticking, and also that coincides with Melissa Mark Riverito's tenure. You know, the clock is ticking on her, uh, you know, lame duck uh, term limited tenure in the city council. As you mentioned, there's also this proposed rezoning in the Bronx, um, and the mayor will be up in the Bronx for his second uh, city hall in your borough week uh, at the end of May. So it'll be interesting to see how the rezoning comes into play there. When the mayor did his first city hall in your borough week on Staten Island, the North Shore rezoning there came up quite a bit, especially in the town hall meeting that he held on the North Shore. So that's something interesting to watch for. I'm sure you guys will be reporting on that. Definitely, because the Bronx yeah. has the Jerome Avenue proposal. Um, and it also has the Southern Boulevard study area, so potentially at least two in the Bronx of, of the mayor's first wave. And, and of course, one thing that's interesting is that that ULERP calendar and how it intersects or doesn't with the political calendar here. Um, a lot of the rezonings, we expected ULERP to begun, begin by now. It has not begun. And coincidence or not, that is going to mean that uh, a lot of incumbent city council members won't have to vote on these proposals before they face the voters, which, you know, is something people have noted. It's definitely something people noted. Our colleagues at Political New York had a, you know, good article about this, that there's some real grumblings about, are they trying to, you know, is the mayor's office willing to work with some of these incumbent Democratic city council members to sort of slow things down a little bit so that they don't, so that that doesn't become a big issue in their, in a primary fight. You know, some of them are facing Democratic primaries and, you know, a lot of times people are going to, you know, come up from the grassroots in the community saying, you know, the council member is not getting us a good enough deal on this rezoning, and that can really resonate in a local race. Um, so definitely something to watch for. And speaking of voting, um, you know, it, things won't happen in time for this year's city elections, but there's still this big push uh, to change the voting laws in Albany to allow New York State, including New York City, uh, things like early voting, easier registration, even same-day registration possibly, and while those reforms went nowhere in the first part of the Albany session leading up to the budget, um, there's still talk about trying to push them forward here while state legislators are still in session through mid-June. And we had a story where we sent a reporter with 
three busloads of advocates who went up to Albany to advocate for these voting reforms. And, you know, they're, they're met with a, a mix of, of, you know, enthusiasm from some lawmakers, skepticism from others. You know, it's a very strange atmosphere up there, but it's kind of shocking that New York can't quite coalesce around a few basic voting reforms. And it's one of those situations where, you know, you can see the inertia uh, playing out in front of your eyes. This is, you know, you have to go to people who obviously have thrived and survived in this system to ask them to change the system. There's a certain dissonance there. Uh, and I wonder if any of the reforms that are being talked about now go to getting on the ballot. Is that part of the, the picture of reform or is it mainly about the voter experience for individual citizens? It's the, the, the reforms that are being discussed as part of these packages aren't really about candidates getting on the ballot. No, although there's some talk about reforming that process as well. That's not really what this package is about. It's much more about when voters can vote, how they register, when they can change party enrollment, you know, things like that, electronic polling books, you know, some of these types of things that would sort of modernize New York's voting laws and practices. Um, and, you know, early voting, I believe, is in something like 37 other states already. And New York, you know, which has a reputation for doing sort of advanced progressive things, can't quite even get, you know, a week of early voting, let's say. So it's very interesting. Like you said, a lot of that has to do, I think, with inertia. It's clear that these things are stalling in the state Senate where Republicans are in control and they're hanging on by a very bare margin. And, you know, all the sort of uh, conventional wisdom is that the more access you give people to vote that favors Democrats in most instances. So that makes the political calculus there clear. One thing that people are talking about for these voting reforms and many other reforms that seem to stall in Albany is obviously the Constitutional Convention vote that's coming up in November on the back of your mayoral ballot uh, and your ballot for other city offices. Um, you know, and people would say that that's the type of stuff that maybe you can't rely on the legislators to do, so the people will have to do it, but we're a long way away from that. There's a lot going on. There's the long gestation of campaign 2017. There's the rezonings. Uh, there's the question of who's going to be part of the mayor's supporting cast if he survives to a second term. Uh, we're also looking at uh, President Trump and our emerging understanding of what his impact and the impact of his movement is going to be on the city. Uh, last week we published a story uh, about how it's affecting efforts to improve Medicaid coverage for people getting out of prison. There's traditionally been this lapse, this gap in coverage, which really complicates reentry, especially for people with a substance abuse problem. Um, the state was moving to try to fix that. Basically, Trump and some of the Medicaid changes he has talked about has forced the state to kind of freeze those efforts. Um, more recently, we had a story today about how changes to the EPA budget might affect one of the Superfund sites in New York, the Wolf Alport site, which is a radioactive contaminated site on the border of Queens and Brooklyn, not a place where there are a lot of companies that can be hit up for the expenses of the cleanup, so it's going to go likely to the EPA trust fund, and uh, that trust fund is depleted, and the staff that would manage the site could also be depleted by Trump budget cuts. So one of many, and we'll be looking at other examples of how the president, in ways that are not going to make big headlines, is going to affect life in New York. I think what you just hit on is so key and why you guys are doing great work at City Limits, which is, you know, there's so much of this... Uh, 30,000 foot coverage of, you know, big sweeping changes coming out of the, you know, federal government and what does this new health bill mean and what is the latest Trump tweet and which foreign allies is he offending and all this stuff that that's important. Some of it's important, but um, what, for you to look at 
these very local community effects and effects on people in New York and you know that's hugely important so that's that's great and meanwhile in New York we have speaking of details and digging down we have the city's budget exactly toward a completion and that's very much related to what's happening in Washington as well so we're watching over the next weeks there's executive budget hearings happening at the city council those kicked off last week um, you know, we cover the first executive budget hearing. That is where the city council is evaluating the mayor's latest iteration of the spending plan. The city council and the mayor have to come to a deal by July 1st, which is the start of the next fiscal year, and they surely will. Last year, I think they came to a deal in mid-June because they're so simpatico that, you know, things are going pretty well between de Blasio and the city council. There's a few areas of disagreement worth watching, you know, f a little funding here, a little funding there. There's maybe half a dozen things that the city council is really pushing for more money on. What's ironic, of course, is the city council is also spending a lot of energy saying that the mayor is not putting enough aside for savings. So, you know, they're trying to have it both ways a little bit at the city council. Um, and so we're going to watch those hearings. We're going to watch those negotiations leading up to a final city budget deal. And, of course, it's going to be interesting to see how they account for all this uncertainty out of Washington. And, of course, when the preliminary budget was out, uh, my, my organization and uh, your voice got on the air talking about accuracy and inaccuracy ah, yes. and reporting the budget. So we'll all just have to be careful this time to make sure we get it all absolutely right. Absolutely.